Welcome to Between the Bytes, weekly discussions on IT, business, and cybersecurity. My name is Derek Parkinson. And my name is Gary Arnold. And today we're joined by Chet from Sophos. And I will let him give us a breakdown of what he does for Sophos and a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Chet, how are you doing today? So I'm Chester Wisniewski. I'm principal research scientist at Sophos, and I am primarily involved in computer security research. So I've been at Sophos for a little over 19 years now, and my job is working with our researchers all around the globe to kind of collect all the deep knowledge they have about all the specific topics that they're digging into every day in order to provide protection for our customers, and then kind of assembling the big picture of what's happening with all these different threats, threat actors, marketplaces, all these things that are going on and kind of painting that big picture so we can all tell what's currently going on out there so we can put up a more effective uh, defense for ourselves. Awesome. I love it. So you've been with Sophos for a while. And before Sophos, did you still work in IT and cybersecurity or different career? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, you know, security industry really didn't exist too much going back much further than that. I mean, I, I got involved in sort of hacking things in the 1980s when computer security pretty much didn't exist outside of the military or government. I mean, everything was sort of wide open and I got to do a lot of exploring, let's say, of completely unsecured systems and, and right, quite recognized that like, this is kind of frightening. This stuff shouldn't be connected. But of course, we didn't really have the internet then as much. It was mostly modems that you had to dial into and that kind of thing. So companies weren't really paying attention to security. So when I, when I started working in IT in the 1990s, there wasn't a lot of demand for the security stuff. It was always sort of a hobby on the side, right? I was working as a network engineer and, you know, working on Unix systems and setting up routers and, you know, this kind of stuff. But there wasn't really a lot of demand for security work until I'd say around, I think it was 95 or 96, where the New York Times got hacked and Kevin Mitnick got arrested. And suddenly businesses started waking up to like, oh, this prodigy thing isn't really prodigy. It's the internet. And maybe us all being connected could be dangerous. And then that's when I kind of started being able to get paid to do security. Excellent. I think it is pretty interesting to hear Sophos does have quite a department for research. What are some of the tools that you use or communities that you look into or where does somebody look to stay on top? Because it is a very fast-paced industry of one side outdoing the other side and back and forth. So yeah, how does that look? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's really different for a lot of the different groups. Clearly, you know, we have specialists that all they do all day is look at spam or all they do is look at ransomware or different things. So for those folks, there's a lot of sort of micro communities of other researchers that they're embedded with where they're always looking at the latest things. But for myself, where I'm trying to get that big picture information that is a little more applied in the day to day for the IT practitioner, I live on Twitter, especially now that the pandemic has happened, you know, before the pandemic. I was a really big fan of getting involved in a lot of community-based conferences. And so some people may have heard of Security B-Sides, which has been sort of a grassroots security event that is in many cities around the United States and all over the world. In fact, I think I've attended and spoken at maybe 30 or more of these B-Sides events in different countries and different cities. And I really enjoyed the in-person stuff to hear people's tales of both success and failure about how their security is working out. But these days, being that we've been mostly trapped inside of our homes the last couple of years, I kind of live and breathe the Twitter. There's a lot of information in real time unfolding on Twitter from all different 
levels of technical expertise, right? There's there's a lot of great journalism and press uh, for sort of more general audiences, all the way on down to the actual researchers that are finding the vulnerabilities that are being exploited by the criminals. Then in this past year, kind of on that note, what have been some of the biggest threats or biggest challenges to overcome when it comes to that cybersecurity front? Well, I think so many people being remote has meant many organizations have provided additional remote access tools and in many cases have not secured them very well. So I think for the last two years, really, we've been sort of in this race to lock down those remote access tools against abuse by criminals. And so, in, you know, in early 2020, there was a lot of abuse of remote desktop, which is a thing built into Windows that lets you remotely see your computer from away. And a lot of organizations enabled that for their employees to kind of get them through the early pandemic. And the criminals, of course, immediately started uh, guessing and stealing everyone's passwords and abusing that access in order to infect networks. And so, you know, we were trying to get the word out on that. And then, as you kind of alluded to earlier, there's a bit of this cat and mouse of every time we fix something, of course, the criminals find a new way to get around what we fixed. And a lot of that focus for this last two years has really all been around different remote access tools being abused by the criminals. So they move from remote desktops to VPNs to, you know, any kind of remote tool that allows employees to be able to work from home. They recognize as, of course, a way for them to very easily remotely get into your system from whatever country they're operating in, right? A lot of people think it's all Russians. And while I'm not saying it's not a lot of Russians, <laughs> it's, it's certainly not exclusive to Russia, but it is exclusive to being able to remotely reach into your pocket and steal your money, right? And it kind of doesn't really matter where in the world you are if those tools are there for your staff. Those same tools are there for the criminals. And, and so I think most of the firefighting, if you want to call it that, this last year has been around trying to help organizations lock down those remote entry points so they can ensure it's only their staff getting access by using things like multi-factor authentication. Awesome. Jet, kind of a tangent of a question here. How much of your research and the findings that you've just described, how much of those insights are generated from what we would maybe call white hat hacking? Do you have people on your team proactively trying to poke holes or find new vulnerabilities versus we hear about a vulnerability, we hear about something coming in because it's been hacked, because it's been exposed? How much is it proactive versus reactive, I guess? Well, you know, we have two different what we would call offensive security teams within Sophos. And the biggest one is primarily focused on attacking our own products. Hmm. We've got quite a diverse portfolio. And obviously, the last thing in the world we want is for something that you put there to protect you to be turned into a weapon. And so we have internal teams and external teams that are constantly attacking our own products. And that's where the majority of our offensive research is focused on, trying to ensure that we haven't missed something in our own stuff. But we also have an offensive security team that's looking more broadly at Linux and Windows and containerization and all the trends that where most of organizations are going these days with deploying their IT services and making sure that we understand where the, the mistakes or the weaknesses are as much as the vulnerabilities. Because it's not vulnerabilities that frighten me as much as things that are misconfigured or partly rolled out in a way that is not completed so that they're secure. We have a rapid response service at Sophos where we help people that are in the midst of an attack where we can swoop in and help them kind of evict the criminals from their networks when they're under active attack. And when we go back and we do the root cause analysis, like how did these attacks begin? More often than not, it's a lot of misconfiguration as much as it is missing a patch or there being an actual bug or vulnerability in, in the application. So we do a fair bit of research around that. And when we find vulnerabilities, obviously we responsibly 
disclose them to the vendors. But most of the time, we're trying to figure out where the, the bulk of the mistakes are being made. And then my job is to try to effectively communicate that out to the world so that we can ring those alarm bells and get people to understand the most common mistakes that are being made so that they're not the next victim. Really interesting point and theme I think that we've talked about on other episodes is is the combination there of the human element and, as you said, the misconfigurations that that's a big problem. And you get maybe overconfident in your tools or even in your processes, which are lovely. It's great to have all these tools and all these pieces of software and technology and hardware in place. But if you've set it up wrong, then it doesn't do anything. One silly example that I think I've, we've talked about before is we went into a client one time and they bragged about, oh yeah, we recently bought this $10,000 or $20,000, whatever it was, firewall. Uh, yeah, so we're good, you know, we're, we're fine and everything's great. And our, our previous provider got it for us. Blah, blah, blah. We're like, okay, great. You mind? Can we see the model? Can we see what it is? And we go to the server room and it's in there and it's this lovely, I don't remember what the model was, what it was. It wasn't plugged in. <laughs> it's just sitting on their rack. It was reassuringly expensive, though, I'm sure. Right, right. Then they had all the confidence in the world. And that's like worst case misconfiguration. But even other smaller things, I imagine, can also lead to problems. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, when you think about uh, if you're a video gamer or, you know, use a desktop PC a lot, the first step for troubleshooting from any game vendor or anything is turn off your endpoint security or your antivirus, right? And Unfortunately, we see those things are often done in troubleshooting scenarios where you know, security is installed and then completely disabled, which ironically leaves you worse off than if you hadn't installed the security software at all, right? Because if you're on Windows, you've got Windows Defender by default, and then you install some security platform, whether it's Sophos or anything else on there, it turns off the Windows Defender and switches it to the one you installed. And then, of course, you're troubleshooting something, and step one is disable your security. So you turn it off, and then you forget to turn it back on because it had nothing to do with the antivirus in the end. The actual problem was your drivers were out of date, or you forgot to apply a patch, or you figure it out three days later. But three days later, you don't remember that the first thing you did was disable all your security. And of course, the criminals come walking in three weeks later because they're constantly scanning the internet looking for these unprotected systems. And next thing you know, you have a ransomware incident. And we all make these mistakes and it's very difficult to have perfect security, right? We've been talking for a very long time about layering security. And this is one of the reasons why we don't just layer because sometimes one layer is more effective than another, which is true. But on top of that, there's the human layer of we may have made a mistake. We may have misconfigured one of the layers. We may have disabled it temporarily and forgotten about it. And having those extra layers gives you another opportunity to sort of have an alarm bell, right? And certainly if you think about security at high security locations, whether that be, you know, government courthouses or whether that be the bank or different things, there's always layers there of multiple ways for the alarm bells to be set off so that hopefully you avoid the, the final step of the money being stolen or, you know, this type of thing. And we're looking at the very same thing when we're looking at our computer networks, right? We count on that firewall to do its job, but if it's misconfigured, we're hoping that any spam does its job. And if in the end, some threat makes it all the way down to a a Windows computer or a laptop or a Macintosh computer, hopefully that endpoint security is still there to be able to, to raise some alarms, even if it's not configured properly, at least enough for humans to get involved to help rescue it. So on your end then, how have you dealt with, or do you have to, I guess, in your department, deal with objections or hesitation when it comes to getting organizations to take all of this seriously? Gary and I have talked on the podcast and things, but also just internally when we're putting together marketing materials and stuff, we start to feel a bit guilty like we're using scare tactics because a lot of it feels that way. But honestly, it's just opening people's eyes to what's actually happening out there. 
is that one of the things that you kind of lean towards is just hard data of this is what's going on? Or do you have some other approaches that you've taken to kind of open people's eyes? I think the biggest mistakes I'm seeing being made are related to outdated models of what the threat is. And so I try to take a consultative approach with the leadership because, and it's people like me, I mean, people my age are the problem, which is, you know, we started our careers in the 90s and 2000s doing actual hands-on IT work. And now we're directors and VPs and Mm -hmm. this kind of level in our organizations that we're the leadership. And our mindset is still stuck in 2005, the last time our hands were on a keyboard installing Service Pack 3 on an exchange server (laughs) kind of thing. So I try to relate to people that way and go, look, let's talk about what you're doing security. And inevitably, I feel like the model that they're addressing is, you know, 10 years ago's model, which is one of the reasons they're failing, because the threat has changed dramatically in how it attacks networks. And so I explain like, well, you know, this is kind of, how we used to do things when the threat looked like this, and there's a lot of nods, and then it's like, okay, but I'm not sure if you realize this giant shift has happened in how the threat works now. So now we need to adapt our approach to defense to this new threat, which is we didn't used to have hands-on keyboard attackers actively trying to subvert our networks. Almost everything was automated in the past. We could rely on these tools to provide, say, 96, 97% protection, whether it was antivirus and firewall, that was pretty much what you had in those days. And it was really quite effective if you had it turned on and configured correctly because the threats themselves were somewhat automated. They were targeting everybody's Flash add-on in their web browser. They were targeting unpatched vulnerabilities before Microsoft had so consistently started giving us fixes on Patch Tuesday, that kind of thing. And it didn't have as much of a detection and response element. That wasn't really part of most organizations' security plans until much, much more recently. And when we're looking at it today, we know that prevention is only going to get much lower percentage than it used to because the humans are driving the attacks. It's not bots anymore. And because they're humans, they're creative, they're tenacious, they're persistent. They don't just give up because the firewall says no. They try another way and they try another way and they try another way until they find that accidental configuration mistake you made, right? And so I think when you can relate kind of the, here's where we were, and now this is what people are doing to bypass what we were doing, the eyes kind of open up and go, oh, right. So if it's a human and I can't rely on the tools, then I need humans, right? I got to have humans actually looking at how to patrol, you know, different, trying to relate it to traditional security, right? You don't just have an alarm system. You also have the security guard who walks around the building, making sure none of the windows got broke open and nobody's propped a door open for going out for a cigarette. So, you know, this is the kind of approach we have to adapt on our network security as well. Has an IT employee propped the door open temporarily while they're doing something and left it open when they went home for the night? And if so, we need to be patrolling and watching for these errors so we have an opportunity to correct them. I like that a lot. Very well said. And that's so interesting that we've kind of not come full circle, but you would think that things would get more robotic, more automated as things progress. But kind of the opposite has happened. The way attacks are carried out, as you said, but then kind of the way that we then have to defend ourselves is more human than ever. But that being said, Jed, I was curious. I know that Sophos has some products that tout maybe the use of AI or, or some you know sort of machine learning in terms of the product. What is the role of that in general in terms of combating cybersecurity? What does that really mean? But also, is there a scenario where these misconfigurations that are, as you say, very common, the human error that is super common, can advanced machines help cover those gaps for us? Can a machine see you've misconfigured this and fix it for you? Is that, a, is that 
realistic or are we, you know, minority report here? No, I, I think I think it's a really interesting question that has it'll have a reasonably long answer because there's lots of little components there, right? But I think the machines are absolutely helping us. We have to be smart enough to listen to the machines, which sounds pretty weird because we would like to think the humans are directing the machines and not the <laughs> machines directing the humans. But the machines often do detect these failures and the humans go, oh, no, I want it that way, which is another whole set of problems, right? But you know, when we look at machine learning and artificial intelligence in our products, I think the most immediate thing people are noticing are that it's allowing us to sort of shrink our footprint and be more efficient at doing what we've been doing all along. When we look at things like antivirus, we all think about downloading our updates and getting cloud lookups and all these things. And of course, all that still happens, but a lot of that has been replaced with a machine learning model, which is much more memory efficient, you don't have as large of an update, you don't use as much resource on the computer, so it means it's more efficient and can hide in the background and be unnoticed to the user while it's still providing a equivalent security to the way it used to when it had to get more frequent updates that were larger and, and more cumbersome on the computer. So, I mean, that's one way that things have immediately helped. Another way that really helps us uh, on the research side is we get hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of malicious file samples every single day coming into the lab and clearly with a few hundred people, we can't look at all those files. So we want to know which ones are interesting, right? Show us the ones that not only did we not detect so we can ensure our customers are protected, but we want to see trends of new techniques that might be getting deployed and making sure that we've got all the tools necessary to effectively defend against those new techniques. And machine learning can ingest those millions of samples and go, these 10 don't look like the others. <laughs> and a researcher wants to look at those 10, not the other two and a half million, right? So the humans and the machines working together are far more successful at accomplishing our goals of providing a high level of protection than either one ever would be alone, right? And many of the listeners probably remember the chess playing robot that IBM built Deep Blue to defeat, I think it was Gary Kasparov, very famously. And at that time, it was like, oh, humans will never be able to beat you know, artificial intelligence again. And of course, that thing that IBM built, it can only play chess. It does nothing else, right? And it was really good at beating humans. But as soon as someone paired a human with an artificial intelligence, immediately it beat Deep Blue because the human intellect combined with the machine's ability to deal with vast combinations of chess moves was more effective than either the human or the machine. And I think we're starting to recognize that in the security space as well, which is our researchers alone do things the machines don't do, but the machines are far better at dealing with the gigantic volumes of spam and malicious files and attacks that we're seeing. But if we put the two together, we end up with an even more superior outcome. And that's what our goal is, is to let the machines deal with the drudgery of the volume. And then hopefully out the other end comes a superior intelligence with the human added to it that can understand some of the context that will never teach a machine. And, you know, we have some work we're doing in our AI team right now where we're trying to help automate the SOC, which is the Security Operations Center. It's where your analysts are looking at the threats coming into your network, trying to figure out which ones may be worth doing an investigation to see if you've been compromised. And it's really hard. It's a very, there's a lot of burnout in this industry. It's a very high stress job to be constantly analyzing large volumes of alerts from all these different security and software products around your network. If we can take the machine and apply it to that, get rid of some of that drudgery so that only the interesting things are percolating up to the top for those analysts to look at. We're hoping that'll help solve that burnout problem with the security analysts, make their jobs more interesting and less monotonous and less drudgery of going through all this stuff. But in the end, it takes a human to look at something and go, nope, that's Sarah. She's doing maintenance right now on that system. That's perfectly fine. Wait a minute. What's this over here? That doesn't make any sense. And it's really hard for a computer to tell and the human will always be needed to do that. 
I like that. And I think that solidifies one of the points that you had said earlier. And that is that one thing that can get missed often. And I know we've talked about a handful of times in webinars, blogs, podcasts, is that I would say, and I'd be interested on your thoughts as well, but the majority of attacks are not personal, but they are human. And that is one thing that I think is missed often is that, like you said, humans are creative and they are tenacious. So although it might not be a personal attack, it is in a lot of cases, their job, their career, that's what they do. It's not somebody winding down after a nine to five and trying to see what they can get into. No, they're committing to something and they're committing to overcoming obstacles. And that is one thing that humans do exceptionally well. And I think that actually goes on both sides. Like you said, is if you have AI and machine learning to go through all of the heavy lifting as far as the vast amounts of data and then things that need more context or a little bit more creativity or some trends that are spotted that need to kind of have a bit of bigger picture built around it. That's where humans come into play on the defensive side. So I think that's a very well put point. Yeah, I think that most of us don't have budget for unlimited humans, so we need to make the best of them. And automation is our answer to this, right? We automate everything we can away, and some of that's machine learning. Some of it's just writing fancy scripts to do things for us and look for those inactive accounts on a monthly schedule in Active Directory and make sure they get disabled if somebody's retired or on maternity leave or whatever happened, right? And as much of it we can automate away, we can then educate the humans to do higher level roles within the organization so that we don't have these shortages everyone's always talking about. We make the most of the humans that we can. And the criminal side of this, I like the way you put that, because it really is, it's a combination of humans with opportunity, right? I'm the guy when I'm at the hotel, when I'm traveling, that checks all the locked doors down the hallway just to see if the maintenance closet's open. I wonder if there's a computer switch in there. Or like, you know, is this door ajar? Well, oh, it's just cleaning supplies, you know. But that's what the criminals are doing, right? They're scanning the internet constantly and they're looking to see, did somebody leave the door ajar? Did somebody prop the door open when they went out for a smoke? The equivalent of that. They're constantly looking, constantly looking to the point where sometimes you make a mistake and it's only a few hours before a criminal discovers it. They're not targeting you. They're targeting anybody that left the door open and they're just looking for open doors. And once they've got that opportunity, then the human kicks in and it is now a one-on-one -on -one attack. And most of us, until five years ago, those types of humans trying to invade your network were the things of defense contractors and financial organizations and banks. It was a JP Morgan Chase problem. It wasn't the local flower shops problem. And so we're in that mindset still that, oh, that's not going to happen to my organization. I'm too small. I'm in New Zealand. I'm in Canada. I'm in Iowa. And they don't even know I'm here. Well, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog and every computer looks the same. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who you are. If you have money to steal, I'm happy to steal it from you. And if you make a mistake, I'm going to walk in and take it. And I, I don't think most companies understand that they have a human adversary, that this is not a robot. This is not something that only cares about you because you're Target or Sony or the New York Times. It only cares really that you have a bank account with more than a few thousand dollars in it and that that's enough to make it worth my time to steal from you. And many of the criminals are in CIS countries, which your listeners may not be familiar with. The CIS is the Commonwealth of Independent States, which most of us that are old enough used to call the Soviet Union. Those countries have different economies than us as well. $1,000 means a very large amount of money to many of the people in CIS countries or to a lot of the hackers that we see coming from India and Bangladesh and Nigeria. Those sums of money are significant. So even as a small organization, you're well worth robbing if you leave the door unlocked because that amount of money can make a big difference in the lives of many of the people that are perpetrating these crimes. 
Jay, I want to ask you a broader question here that we've touched on in the past, and that's sort of the, maybe this isn't the right term to use around this, but sort of an arms race that it seems like we're kind of in. Things seem to be escalating. And maybe that's just the nature of the internet is now more prevalent than ever. There's more devices that are connected to the internet than ever. And so, of course, there's going to be more you know, malicious activity, but it seems to be getting worse. Ransomware is on the rise. As you mentioned several times, there's increasing threats. Is there a macro way of addressing this? And obviously, that's probably something the role of governments, but maybe it's also the role of private technical organizations and companies. How can we put the lid on this? Is it as simple as we need to get people more educated and just start using the tools better? Or is there a, a macro way of addressing this rising threat? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't like the answer, I don't think. But I don't know that there's a good way of macro addressing it. Certainly in the United States, CISA, which is a part of the Department of Homeland Security, has made huge strides in more effectively communicating what these threats look like. And organizations that listen to the advice provided by CISA are far more secure than they ever would have been before. I encourage everyone's security team to make sure they subscribe to the bulletins that CISA issues. They tell you which products are being attacked right now actively. Of course, their goal is to inform federal agencies of what they should be doing to protect themselves. But we have the same adversaries as these federal agencies. If you follow their advice to protect against that threat, you're protected against all the threats. So I think you know that's one approach is definitely getting clear, consistent, up-to-date communication about what the threats are. And we're pleased to see the work CIS is doing. The problem is the only people listening to CIS are people like me, which I already knew the answer. We need the average organizations, security teams, and IT teams to start paying attention to that advice and taking it to heart. And in an environment like the United States that is very much not pro-regulation, it's incredibly difficult to make progress. So we're making progress with electrical utilities. We're making progress with critical infrastructure, chemical processing plants, water treatment, these kinds of things that CISA is now reaching out to one-on-one -on -one to each community, each state, each county that provides those services and trying to help them shore up their security, or as Jen Easterly, the head of CISA, puts it, putting her shields up, which is great. But that doesn't scale out to the millions of small and mid-sized businesses all around the country. They have to be listening and taking that advice to heart, or we're not going to make a lot of progress there. And that's the challenge. And and it can be addressed at other levels as well. I mean, as software companies, we need to be building things that are harder to break into and that don't require the user to need to know or do anything. When things are important, we need to be forcing people to make more secure authentication choices. And certainly, you know, we have the benefit of our customers that use our products being security professionals and IT professionals. We require multi-factor authentication in Sophos Central. We just do not allow you to disable it. You must use multiple factors because we know the criminals will log in and turn off your security if you're just relying on a password. And that's exactly what they will do. But for our individually, for our own Gmail accounts, for our Facebooks, our Instagrams, our Twitters, whatever things that we're doing, we need to be moving toward that becoming normal that we have multiple factors. And maybe that's putting our fingerprint on the sensor on our phone or it's face unlock or it's something in combination with that password in order to prevent criminals from simply guessing or stealing our passwords and literally walking away with our digital identities. So we need to start normalizing, sadly, a little bit more inconvenience, things like multi-factor. That alone would stop probably 80 or 90% of the attacks we see if we just had better authentication. I'm hoping if people have that explained to them, especially when we're talking about their retirement account, when we're talking about their finances, when we're talking about, sadly, for most of us, our social media accounts are our online identity. If we are willing to take that little burden on of doing a little extra step every time we log in, we almost guarantee 
at least for now, that that's going to keep someone out of our pockets. Great thoughts. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing. And it's not an easy, of course, it's not an easy problem to solve. It's many, many problems. But as you've emphasized, user training and the basics, and we bring it up every podcast episode, we've joked about renaming the podcast to the multi-factor authentication podcast. <laughs> MFA is where it's at. But you said your last little phrase there was for now. What's over the horizon, both the good and the bad? Well, the truth is, not all multi-factor is equal. And while today there's a lot of fussing about that people go, oh, you know, don't use SMS, don't use this or that, or, you know, the six digit numbers that come up in the app on your phone. And all of these things, sadly, aside from a token, are able to be fished. Meaning I can pretend to be Facebook and ask you the six digits. And if you give it to me, it's no good. It's the same as if you just gave me your password. And that's true, whether it's an SMS or an app on your phone or even a token. If there's listeners that have been doing this a while, you may have had the RSA token you had on your keychain, a little digital screen that every 30 seconds, a different six digit number would show up. We all carried them in the security world 10 years ago. But no matter what, if it's just something like that, I can just ask you nicely for it. And if you think I'm legitimate, you're going to give it to me no different than I might ask you nicely for your password. So that is a one weakness of most multi-factor solutions that we expect and have already seen a movement toward a lot of criminal groups to start phishing those tokens in real time and exploiting them. Because it turns out most people, if you ask nicely, will give you whatever you ask nicely for. Yeah. So that's a problem. And, you know, the solution to that, and I'm just looking around my desk while we're here on the podcast and it's not in front of me, but somehow I've lost my keys, uh, which is a problem considering they have a security token on them that I want to talk about. And maybe somebody's got my security token is logging in as me right now to something very important. <laughs> I think I must have left them in my pocket when I took the dog for a walk. But nonetheless, there are tokens that you plug into a USB port on your computer or can connect to your phone or computer via Bluetooth that have sort of an interactive mechanism that the token actually verifies that the website you're trying to log into is that website before it surrenders the secret. And that prevents somebody else from impersonating Facebook or Twitter or whatever Gmail or whatever you're logging into. And so that is much, much harder to break, but very, very few people are willing or currently carry that kind of a token and use them. And unfortunately, many websites are making this even harder on people with, you know, this one wants 12 characters, this one wants 16, this one wants you to stand on your head and use an ampersand. Mm -hmm. And like, it's really hard for the average person to cope with the inconsistency, even if they're trying, because it's so, you know, so many of my accounts are like maximum 24. And I'm like, what horrible thing are you doing with my password that you're limiting it? Not that I want to memorize more than 24, but like I'm thinking about the security mistakes that are made in programs when they're written and going, there's only one reason you would limit this this way because you're doing something else wrong that's going to get me compromised. In the end. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I'm reading a little too much into it because I've, you know, literally been doing this for close to 30 years and I see boogeymen around every corner. But things need to be consistent for the average person. So there's one thing that they, we can teach them that this is how you do it and this is how you do it right. And they should be able to consistently do that everywhere that they need to prove their identities so that they're not caught up in all this nonsense. Very well put. Chet, great advice and appreciate those insights. Tying the bow on that last bit and just sort of maybe some closing thoughts a little bit here, Chet, is you've had a lot of advice for, I think, end users and for organizations. What are some other things maybe that you're seeing in your research or your, your data collection, you know, today that we should be on the lookout for? 
Well, I think, you know, this human element isn't going to go away. And as long as there's a human element, you need well-trained humans watching for those intrusions. And for smaller organizations, it may be unrealistic to have a full-time 24-7 trained security team to be watching for these things. And that's where partners and service providers like yourselves or services like we offer come into play where you can kind of rent that as a service with other small organizations so that you can pool your resources to have experts watching your back. And I think for large organizations, you're kind of more partnering with companies like us for threat intelligence. So you make sure you've got access to all the latest information to understand what those threats might be for your own security people to then implement custom tailored policies to your environment because you're big and you've got the money to do that. And in the midsize organizations, it's more by industry, right? I think midsize companies that are in high-risk industries, critical infrastructure, finance, et cetera, probably want to own that in-house and partner with external companies to assist them. And mid-sized companies that are more traditional manufacturing services companies, that kind of stuff, probably are going to outsource that because that's not something that's their specialty and it's easier to pool their resources and save some money by not having that as an in-house function. And then on the low end, it's almost always going to need to be someone on the outside kind of keeping up with all those latest trends and providing you the advice and helping you implement some of that advice as you go down the path, because it's just so hard to stay on top of. But any specifics are hard to really predict. I mean, there was so much noise in the past few years about IoT and 5G, and none of it has mattered a lick in the end, really. The attackers are still going after your (laughs) Windows servers where all the important data is stored. And if you decide to put all that data in the cloud, guess what? They're just going to start hacking your cloud. I forget who it was that said, you know, you rob banks because that's where the money is. But I mean, in the end, wherever your data is, somebody's interested in that data to compromise you, to extort you, wherever it is, is where they're going to be attacking. And as far as I can tell that none of my money is inside of Alexa or in a smart camera or whatever. And while those devices can be used in botnets and in niche attacks of certain types, they're not, they shouldn't be ignored. In the end, wherever your data is, is where they're going to steal it from. And currently that's on our Windows servers inside of our networks and it's in containers in the cloud. And that's exactly where the focus for the majority of attackers is. So I don't see any big shifts. I think they're going to continue to seek out the mistakes we've made. They're going to continue to look for those computers that didn't get patched. I don't know how many times we can tell people to patch things, but we did a report called the Active Adversary Report that you can find on our website that we just released about three, four weeks ago. And I think it was 56% of the attacks we helped customers deal with that were actively in their network. In 56% of the cases, it was something unpatched. And almost always, it was Microsoft Exchange, which those patches were released more than a year ago. And they're still being actively exploited as the number one way into computer networks today, uh, a year later. So we're not talking about zero days here. We're talking day 389, I think. And that is something we can do. We can address that. But people, if they're listening, we can address that. And the other way, of course, was through stolen credentials back to multi-factor, right? So to me, I look at those reports every year, and that's where I spend the rest of my time lecturing the community on, which is how are they getting in? We write this report every year. And then that's the thing that I need to keep hammering into people's heads uh, through the opportunities I get to speak to them, which is... There's a lot of sexy things in the news out there that are really interesting attacks and very few of them are happening to you. What's happening to you are the things that we've been talking about for a long time. And let's just put our attention where the focus needs to be. One last thought on that. And I I know it was a long answer, but no, you're good. We need to understand that we have to prioritize where our resources are going because we're never going to have enough resource, right? And I think we're trying to spread it too thin. I heard somebody say it's like trying to coat the moon in a layer of peanut butter. 
it gets so thin by the time that in the end, you can't even tell you've done it. And I think we get that way with security, like patching those exchange servers that are sitting there facing the internet is a far bigger priority than patching my laptop. If my laptop gets compromised, IT can re-image it, and it probably costs the company about $1,000 for that incident in the end. It's annoying. I'm without my computer for a day. My productivity sucks. But I'm really back right to where I started. My files are still on Office 365 and my OneDrive, and I'm back in my Outlook, and I'm working again. That server, that Exchange server gets hacked. That's a million-dollar incident, or on average in our survey this year, $1.45 million per incident when a server gets hacked. Ouch. I'm spending all my time patching those servers. I don't care if the laptop gets patched. It's important to patch that laptop. Don't get me wrong. But I'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Where are my crown jewels? They're in that database server. They're in my CRM database. They're in my exchange server. That's the thing that costs me a million dollars every time it's down. That's where I'm patching. That's where I'm focusing my attention. Unfortunately, I think that mindset is still, I'm worried about patching my 12,000 laptops which takes me more time and energy for less benefit. Mm-hmm. If I've got limited resource, I can put all where the threat is. And right now that's on your server and your cloud. Very well said. Yeah, Jed, I, I think this has been one of the best cybersecurity conversations we've had on this podcast. I'm pretty excited. There's a lot more rabbit holes that I want to pick your brain about. So we'll have to uh, definitely have you back on. To wrap things up, we're going to ask the really hard questions now to get to know you just a little bit better. First one being, what are you watching, listening to, or reading right now that's really got your attention? Well, I just finished reading the new Neil Stevenson Termination Shock sci-fi book, which I I thoroughly enjoyed. It was was a nice twist into sort of um, interesting thoughts around climate change activism, let's say, without spoiling the plot. And I quite enjoyed something that was a little bit less doomsday, let's say. I I read a lot of sci-fi and a lot of it can go into some pretty dark places. And so it was nice to kind of see a a little twist on, I won't say positive, but mostly positive outtakes for once (laughs) or outlooks for once. So so that was kind of nice. And I don't spend all of my time doing security world stuff, but my movies have been curtailed by the fact that all my movie time was in seat 13D on my way to a conference uh, on the small screen in an airplane. So my movie watching has plummeted precipitously during the <laughs> pandemic because I wasn't flying anywhere. So I've been I've been mostly diving into my my backlog of books and things. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, the new season of Ted Lasso, I guess, on Apple TV Plus uh, later this summer as well. I've heard great things about that. So many negative things go on in my daytime job that I try to have my media consumption be a little more frivolous and positive. (laughs) Pull us out of the deep, dark security hole of that boogeyman being around every corner. (laughs) Completely agree. And then last one, do you have a favorite destination for vacationing? I think the place I, I miss the most at the moment is Australia, which I go to frequently for work and turn into little mini vacation trips every time I manage to make it down to Australia and New Zealand. And and if I had to pick even a more micro spot, I would, uh, Tasmania is one of the most fantastic places on earth. And to have had the privilege to visit Tasmania a few times is something that I recognize as an amazing thing in and of itself to have such a privilege. But I, I would go back in a heartbeat if I had the opportunity to make my way back down there. I love it. Excellent. Very cool. Chet, if people want to reach you, how can they reach you? Sure. Folks can reach out to me uh, via email if they want at chesterw at sophos.com, S-O-P-H-O-S, or on social media at Chet Wisniewski on Twitter. Love it. Excellent. We'll link those in the description too. All right. Well, yeah, uh, Chet, thank you again for joining us. I think it was a very solid discussion. Lots of great insight from you. So I appreciate that. 
And we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode and call it a day. So thank you guys for joining again. And we'll catch you guys on the next one. Sounds good. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.